0: Welcome to Inside the Treehouse, where great educators come to hang out. Uh, Today, I am interviewing my dear friend, Bob Aker, for the second time. I'm Jeff Jones, I'm the CEO of Solution Tree, and this is sponsored by Solution Tree. So, Bob and I had our first conversation, um, and it was broadcast on October 7th, 2020, if you wanna hear about it. And in that, we talked about Bob's career into education, following the Marines, kind of a security route that he took, uh, how he met Rick DeFore, how they worked for 20 years of doing research before the very first book, Professional Learning Communities at Work, was published, which was actually their third book. Pursuing the Promise of Excellence was first, and then Creating the New American School was second. Uh, creating New American School was done by NES, which is now Solution Tree. Then PLC at Work came out in um, really December of 19. 19- Ninety-seven, but it has a 1998 date, and uh, D.G. O'More and I acquired National Educational Service on December, or excuse me, January 7th, 1998. So the book was relatively brand new. You were dean of the College of Education at the time, and Rick was superintendent at Adelaide Stevens High School in 1998. So welcome back, Bob Aker.
1: Well, thanks, Jeff. I always, uh, every time I get spend time with Jeff, it's a uh, we usually have a little business to conduct, but mostly we have our friendship and families to catch upon. And it's just been such a treasure in my life, both professionally and personally. Not many people have uh, uh, can say that about their publisher. <laughs> <laughs> They're also a good, dear friend. And
0: 25 years.
1: But it's been, uh, every time I see you, or we talk on the phone, or, which is frequently, You'll always say it's been quite a journey, and, uh, and it really is, this journey of both obviously personally, but it's been an amazing professional journey to be a part of, but also just to witness how the change in education, and thinking about improving student achievement, how that can, has evolved and, and continues to evolve. it's been
0: been a lot of fun and uh and like you said bob our friendship is probably more important than our business relationship we've been on a lot of vacations together you star me and margaret when rick and becky were alive we've done things so and it'll keep going on for years and years i
1: hope um
0: (laughs) as will plc's at work i would imagine so in 98, when we started uh, the journey together, we had our first conference in Tremblant, Canada, uh, with a total of 91 people, I believe. Was it that? The second year, we were at Hilton Head, and I think we had 76 people because it was August and a little hot. The third year, which was 2000, we had 130 people because we started targeting just the people who bought the book. But the book was starting to pick up steam, starting to collect a lot of uh, attention around the country. But PLCs in and of themselves, even though they were first started to be researched and written about in the 1960s, hadn't really caught on yet, had they?
1: No. And and in fact, I I suit to sheer luck. Uh, Most people uh, think of PLCs as an education-driven idea. And of course, education played part of it. But I've always taken a little different route in my, my personal career thinking about that. I remember, uh, I used to teach economics in high school, and I think all of us who, who had that sort of business sort of inclination uh, remember the impact of uh, Edward uh, Demings and the whole idea of quality circles.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right? Yep. And, and if you really think about it, all since since Deming. And those 13 points and quality circle nine. That whole idea of collaboration being an engine that drives any organization, I, I've always thought that they didn't quite get the uh, recognition he deserved for the impact on education. I mean, everybody knows the impact on business, right, of you know, education because that idea of collaboration was, I think, grounded in that sort of era of Japanese management and and dimming. But then, you know, this whole idea in business, that if you were going to survive in the world of business, you had to be a learning organization. That things were just developing and changing so rapidly, particularly technology-driven. Just so rapidly that you had to be a learning organization. And so if you put those kind of two together, I've always thought that the real root of learning communities, and, I, and I, I don't know who put I've always thought maybe in education, Rick and I put the word professional in front of that, but the whole idea of a learning community and its roots in the business community mm-hmm. prior to, to education. But I don't be wrong about all that. That's just the way I've always thought of it. And then, of course, we were so fortunate that uh, other things were happening in education that kind of set the stage for uh, for professional learning communities. Uh, Prior to to 1998, you know, the late 90s, I think that most people, and I think this is still true to a great extent today,
0: most people
1: when they think about school improvement, they see that as being analogous to teacher improvement the idea that the way you improve schools is to improve an individual teacher. And so we get, I mean, the history of American public education could really be viewed as uh, our efforts to change teachers to improve schools. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's been one sort of initiative after another. We need to, uh, well, it goes all the way back to teachers need to be college graduates. And then, well, teachers need to have teacher education courses. And then, well, we need to have teachers uh, need to raise the standards for teachers. And then, well, teachers need to know more about the content area. And then, of course, you get into the 80s and how teachers teach is, is the key in all the research on effective teaching. And then you get things like, well, our problem is the way we pay teachers. We need to have individual teachers who do well make more, those who don't do so well make less or be dismissed. So we've always thought of the way to improve schools was to improve the way teachers teach, either through their content or just through their methodology. And um, we came along, Rick and I, in our just age and also our experiences at a time when Two of those ideas, and actually ended up being three, were prominent in education. One was the idea of clinical supervision that the way to improve schools was to go in and watch teachers teach and help them through self-reflection, think on how they might become more effective teachers. That was a big movement, though, idea of teacher observation. But it was just that, it was observing. Teachers and how they taught. And, and, and kind of following in the footsteps of that was the effective schools movement. And kind of the basis for that movement was really just an extension of the thinking about te- teachers. The idea was that, well, maybe we need to rather than try to improve schools one school, I mean, one, rather than try to improve schools one teacher at a time. Maybe what we need to do is improve schools one school at a time, because our research indicates that some schools are more effective than other schools, and here's what the more effective schools do. Uh, Both of those movements focus on what happens in classrooms and sort of the structural things of schooling. And if there's any contribution that Rick and I made, I think uh, at its core it was this, that we need to move our focus from this idea of how teachers teach. Not saying that's not important, but let's recognize that how teachers teach is a means to an end. And it's the end we should focus on. The question that we thought should drive school improvement was not how do we prepare teachers, how do we try, you know, standards for teachers, how do teachers teach. The question should be, are the kids learning and how do we know? And so the whole idea of professional learning community is that the fundamental purpose of schools is to ensure high levels of learning for all kids. And that's best done, accomplished when people behave in a professional manner, that is we accept the characteristics of a high performing profession and it's best done in a collaborative culture. Fortunately Rick was a highly regarded practitioner and my Area of research at the university had been, at the at the institute for research, on teaching at Michigan State. My interest had been, I didn't work there; I was just uh, had done. I uh, had a lot of associations there. Um,
0: that was with Larry Lazak yeah, and Ron Edmonds' group, yeah, yep. and, and uh, Judy there, the the dean there.
1: And uh, but but my point is, we were more practitioner type, and that is. We didn't see ourselves as research producers, but our idea was how can you take best practices and best embed those in schools in a way that will give us results. Rick and I both had a background in history. We were both history teachers in high school. Rick and I were very pragmatists at the core. The question for us was what works. And uh, we were great believers in what's popularly now called action research. But, hey, let's keep, we'll take best practice, we'll embed it in school, let's give it a try. And if it doesn't work, let's see what needs to be tweaked to make it work, and if that doesn't work, let's just, just discard it and uh, try something else. But our standard, I mean, when you think about it, there's two ways of thinking about validity in, in, in research. One way is statistical validity. Research producers, usually college professors or people of that ill, they will do experiments, uh, try things out and validate it through some statistical uh, methodology. All right. Say, so, right. look, this works, and here's why. Look, see the statistics. Here's it shows it works at this 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 particular level. John is a good example of that. What works, what doesn't work. But it's all based on. Rick and I didn't disregard that. We think that's a terrific starting point to think about validity. But we're more consumer reports type. Notion. Our our idea was it really only becomes valid when practitioners try it out and validate it in their school with their kids under those uh, conditions. And so that's why we've often thought that the idea of a learning community, that's what's really meant by a learning community, I think. It's a community of practitioners who are learning together what works in their schools in order to achieve higher levels of learning for their kids. So, uh, Jeff, I think you were the one that uh, coined the phrase uh, that PLC that works a practitioner-driven movement. Yeah, And I think that's true for that reason. It's sort of, a, I like to think of I've never really said this, I don't think, before in any format, but I really think PLCs, it works The Consumer reports and (laughs) research. Nice school.
0: Yeah, uh, the research started back in the 60s, but the practitioner movement didn't start until you and Rick started implementing it. And then the – right, in Stevenson specifically, right? Right. But the ideas that you were trying to implement in schools, the things that you say you were trying to do in action research – they didn't all come from schools. Well, I don't right. came from business.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, in fact, I, I've always thought. The, uh, here's an interesting thing, I think. I, I have a screwy notion of this. When you think about it, what's the most important thing in most people's families' lives their children. Right. right. So if the learning of your children, you would think, would, would have a, a very high sense of urgency You'd say, well, God, we, we just got to have more kids learning more because we talk about our kids here, our neighbors did, their friends did, their families did. Um, but interesting, I think, in our society, we've always had a higher degree of urgency in the business world uh, as far as, well, it's... It, is a, it's a profit motive. I mean, sure, you, you know, if you're going to survive as a business, you
0: better be a learning
1: organization, and in, in the sense of urgency is there. Best practice brings best profits, you, exactly. And you, and you don't wait around about, about it. There's a interesting research about what the urgency is uh, tied to, you know, they say schools will never. Really, have a sense of urgency because they're domesticated organizations. Sort of like uh, domesticated animals really don't have a sense of urgency about eating or where they're going to sleep right. or where they're going to take care of. And the same is true with public uh, organizations. Uh, we're going to get our state funding for people funding and so forth. But if you're a business, your solution tree, well, it's not there, that's not there. You have a sense of urgency to find best practice, try best practice. So Rick and I look if you look at uh, well, I have never done this and I've always kinda of thought I should kinda of do this, but if you looked at the references in PLCs at work, right and in our subsequent books that Rick and Becky and I just either the two or the three of us. Right. I I would guess that roughly 50% of the references are from the business community. We think there was a, we always thought there was a great deal to be learned about best practice wherever it is, it doesn't, you know. Why why wouldn't you look for best
0: practice wherever it occurs? That seems like a pretty good intern study to me coming down the path. (laughs) (laughs)
1: But I, but I, I do I I, I I never understood, and I and I know I can kind of understand why someone would say it, but if, if you really thought about it, I think we there have been some in education that's been far too quick to dismiss research or practices outside of education. Right, and and the thing would be yeah, but. We're dealing with kids. They're dealing with adults. We're, you know, that we're different. We're like, well, of course. But every organization's is different. Sure. I think there's great things to be learned from military, uh, the way the military does things. Uh, obviously, schools aren't military organizations. No, schools aren't businesses. I mean, military not businesses. But uh, Rick and I were very pragmatic. Our question is, what works? Right. Why do I have this move and crew?
0: There's a lot to be learned from, you know, when you say the military, because Ed Ackerman's the president of Solution Tree. He was 26 years in the military. I've been talking with Bob Marzano, whose son is about to uh, retire from the Navy as commanding officer of the, of the USS Kennedy, uh, the newest battleship out there. Had a great career. Uh, and he's going to get into writing about leadership, military leadership in schools is what he wants to do, because he's going to combine his knowledge with what Bob knows about schools.
1: I'll give you my example. I'll give you two classic examples that have to do with pale part. art. Here's an example of the pragmatism art. And I can almost visually see Rick sitting here doing this uh, podcast with us. And so Rick would say something to the effect, I can just hear him say, well, would it make sense if the purpose of schools is to ensure that kids learn? Wouldn't the first obvious question be, learn what? Mm -hmm. Well, the military, when I was at Parris Island, South Carolina, I was in the Marines at Parris Island, they were tremendous in the military about clarity, about what you were to learn. Right. I mean, it, uh, I would show you my age, but for example, you had to learn every single thing about an M1 rifle. And it's kind of the basis of the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. Well, they were very, very clear about that. I mean, it was crystal clear. This is what a student needs to know about the M1 rifle or anything else. So, the, uh, in, in Ed's case, it would be flying a Black Hawk Right. But uh, clarity of outcomes, the military has contributed a great deal of that. And actually, it became the basis for what became known as program learning, where it was all program laid out. Well, that all came from the military. And the other one, of course, would be, and this was the one I think the most obvious, was we make a big deal in PLCs at work and... Education generally about the power of formative assessment, checking along the way. Well, I can assure you that the United States Marine Corps in their training program uh, check every step along the way. Right. You don't <laughs> wait till the end to see if you can or can't do something. It's constant formative assessment, feedback. Here's what you need to do. And so for some reason, we just, if it comes from, say, the military or business, there's some who say, well, that's not school as well. It's, it's learning. It's learning. Right. Adult learning, you know. Um, I've always thought that our uh, professional development programs, our staff development programs in schools should be based on that same principle, you know. Let's look at our staff, see what we're struggling with, see what our adults need to know, be clear about that. Let's give them the training. let's check along the way. They're not going to learn at the same rate, so let's give some up more help than others and extend the learning of those who are getting. So it's actually, if you think about it, the PLC at work movement is a way of thinking as much as anything. Obviously, it's thinking and doing. If you don't do it, it doesn't matter. But what you do is determined by how you think. and sort of a conceptual way of thinking. Uh, I've always thought of
0: it that way. So it's it's been said that now that we're in our 25th year, it's the longest continuous school improvement model in K-12 education, maybe ever, because in my opinion, uh, but we want yours. You're the expert. It's because it's action research, practitioner movement, and it's constantly growing. It's not, you read this checklist, do this checklist, and do it over and over and over again. It's constantly changing, except for three big ideas, four critical questions, etc.
1: cetera. Well, that's true, but I think it's, it's like what you just said, I think it's layered in this sense. Uh, The reason it's constantly growing is because it's increasingly accepted. That raises the question Then why is it increasingly accepted? And I think this is what's unique and it's what it's made it continue to grow and continue to be uh, used is uh, the role that practitioners have played in the growth of the PLC. At, or we say it's practitioner-driven. Well, what does that mean? Well, think about this. Has there ever been another movement in education in which, while the, the basic core is research-driven in the traditional sense, best practices, Collaboration, formative assessment, time, support, those kinds of things are are sort of traditional research content. But look what's happened since 1998 to in the last 25 years. Nearly, I don't know the number, but I was going to say nearly all, but certainly a high percentage of the PLC at work authors are practitioners. Yes. Our books, if you get a PLC at work book, the likelihood is, the high likelihood is, it's written by a practitioner who has been successful in whatever they're writing about. Right. They've actually done the work as opposed opposed to, I have an idea that I think would work for y'all. In other words, what they really write about is here's how we improved our school or Here's how we've improved schools in our district. or Here's what we've done. Here's how it worked. Here's how we had to tweak it. Here were the ideas it was based on. And the same is true not only with the writers, the primary writers in the PLC at work movement, but also if you couple those with our institutes, where people can come and interact with those people, our presenters at the PLC Institute and our most popular presenters are all practitioners. Right. Uh, Occasionally we will maybe get somebody, well like myself, you know, who's a college dean or somebody, but I was the exception. I wasn't norm. And so nearly all of our writers, presenters, people who really make up the PLC at work move are all practitioners who've actually done what they're either writing or talking or
0: consulting about. Right. You can't become an associate for those who are listening. You can't become a PLC associate unless you have been part of the leadership team who has run a PLC the pre-LC process to the school and had continuous school student achievement for three years. And then you have to be nominated by an active associate. And so all the books, all the authors that we have, have been basically practitioners in the classroom. And then as they become taken on uh, an associate's role full time, they actually collect more research as they travel around the country about a certain area, and it enhances their writings even more. So they've led it, and now they're seeing it all over the country firsthand.
1: But that's giving us, I think, a different kind of validity that I was speaking about earlier. Our, our, uh, if you look, we don't discount, and I want to be clear on this, we don't dis- discount statistical validity. But the validity that our authors bring to our PLC and workbooks and our PLC Institute goes beyond statistical validity, and um, and it brings the real world of their school, their classrooms, their situation. For example, there is a very common thing that happens between people who attend our institute and, and our presenters, people will raise their hand, invariably, on one of our panels, and the question will be something like this, they say, yeah, but question. Yeah, but in our school, we have X number of kids who are special ed, or we have our kids, so we have a lot of uh, poor kids, and we have a lot of our schools are basically a wealthy school, whatever that makes our school well, there will be somebody there that will, on the panel, or our presenter, who will say, oh, our school is very similar, let me tell you how we do that. Right, right. That's the kind of consumer validity that you don't get with statistical validity. Right. Because we say, oh yeah, we had that same issue, and we struggled with it for, you know, a few years, but we kept tweaking it, and then we did this, we did that, and... This seems to really work for us. And the person hearing that says, well, I'm going to try that, but I may have to tweak it a little more. And so you get this community of learners, I think, really. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, our uh, One of the phrases that Rick and I put high value on that doesn't get repeated enough in our, uh, I don't think our books or our institutes, but it was the... Very basis, I think, of uh, what I said that I said that the really basic for basis for a professional learning community was this fundamental shift from focusing on teaching to focusing on learning. Well, if you extend that to adults, in every issue that's faced in a school, the first step in a professional learning community to dealing with that issue is first, let's learn together. Let's gain shared knowledge in order to deal with these issues. Right. So we are, we're going to learn first. We're going to learn together. We're going to be a learning community. And so I find all these ideas really stimulating because I think they are not typically the way we think about school improvement. Mm-hmm. I heard a, a phrase one time, really, and, and, uh, because I had taught myself in uh, K-12 and had uh, been an administrator, and, you know, uh, spring's coming around, and it's going to be state testing, or either the results have come back in the fall. I always thought, in many of the places where I worked, school improvement was really just random acts of desperation. How <laughs> I mean, they really were. Somebody would attend a conference, and they'd say, oh, I heard that Jeff Jones. And they would say one or two things. He's really, really good. We should have Jeff in. And, uh, and good was kind of Nebula's notion. Jeff's really good. And more often than not, what that meant was Jeff was really funny.
0: Entertaining. Entertaining yeah. or
1: witty or he'll hold people's attention. And I've always really been a great admirer of the US Department of Education of Agriculture and the way it's organized. And I don't think I doubt a few may never have thought of this before. But anyway, Solution Tree uses many of the same principles to uh, enhance learning that the the U.S. Department of Agriculture uses in the sense that we're organized by practitioners, farm practitioners. And, and here's a classic example. And I'll use Tennessee as an example, but Indiana is probably even a better example. In trying to get farmers to use a new, but we'll use this example. In order to get farmers to use a new seed, right, it will be maybe require less water or bite resistant or whatever they could just uh, say statistics show that if you use this seed whatever but they're smart enough to know that farmers if that's not going to prevent the farmers been using this seed and been successful with it for years. my seed I've used it I you know it's like my class or kid. right uh, and so they do these things in demonstration farms and you'll be riding down the road in Tennessee, and you'll see on the road, it'll have a cornfield. It'll say the University of Tennessee demonstration farm. Right. They'll right. show different <laughs> levels of corn. Yeah. Well, the farmer sees the corn that's really tall. He says, so I don't have a lot about seed, but that's the kind of corn I'm planting next year, <laughs> right? What well, we do with that, with our PLC model school, we have, uh, it's the same thing we have planted these seeds, hey, here, here's over two. That's what you want to look like. Two, three hundred schools. Yeah, uh, almost four hundred. Four hundred schools, if we say. Uh, uh, and we and our PLC associates are all practitioners, are our county agents. Right. And uh, so we have a much more uh, practitioner model, which analogous to the uh, uh, U.S. Department of Agriculture, I think. Uh, We have never, in education, invested in dissemination of ideas and new knowledge the way that other uh, government agencies have helped.
0: Why is that? We don't have any
1: infrastructure
0: Is it the infrastructure? Is that why we
1: don't? Well, we don't have anything. We don't have county agents. We don't have any of that. Uh, demonstration for whatever. Right. And we've relied, well, we have it, but we just a different model. We relied in education of new knowledge coming in the form basically of printed material, journals, you know, uh, that sort of journals, books, and all that has a high, uh, uh, it's given a lot of prominence in education getting published. White papers. And all that yeah. stuff. And through government grants. And so that's sort of our our dissemination thing. What's really interesting to me is that when I said Rick and I, our whole PLC at work thing was based in pragmatism, pragmatism what works. Right? What's really interesting to me is that in education, we will speak to things that don't work for decades. <laughs> and and uh, it just struck me as odd. Right, uh, You're a classic man. You would say, I think, that uh, I mean, common sense would tell you, that there would have to be some cost. We have limited resources, and so there'd have to be some cost-benefit uh, ratio, you would think. To what we do in schools to raise student achievement. Well, you could take any one state, and if you multiply it by 50 states, think of this figure. What if you took the last 10 years okay. and said, here's what a state, one state, spent on testing? In the state of Tennessee, for example, we test every student every year. An enormous cost, not just on the actual, the test, but the training of the principal of the money. You pay for the money you know. Tremendous cost. So if on one axis you put, here's how much we spent annually for 10 years, the total cost, and then ask the question, and so what has been a percentage gained in student learning? All right, the state assessments that we do. Right. And guess what we'll do next year across the country. We'll continue doing. It. You couldn't do that in a business. I mean, it, you would be forced to say, "Hey, we got very limited resources. This isn't business anywhere." Right. But uh, there's an old phrase I never forget. This growing up it says, uh, "You don't fatten a pig by weighing it all the time." <laughs> well, that's our motto. <laughs> you know we keep trying you know <laughs> so William and I still get that uh, but I I feel so blessed to be part of that team really that I said you know the ideas are there the ideas of uh, Guaranteed Bible curriculum, Bob Marzano all that work that's there uh, the idea of formative assessments you know Bill and Willem and Paul Black Others before that, I think the military did it long before that. Yep. Uh, but that piece is there. The one piece of research we know that no one disagrees with is one of the few pieces we have 100% agreement on. Kids learn at different rates and in different ways. Mm-hmm. And then, well, that means then we're probably going to have to give some kids more help. Right. Right. And those kids that are further along, we're probably going to have to extend their learning. We want to hold them back, so all those sort of pieces were there. And so, what really what Rick tried to do at Stevenson, and I was there from the very first day when he became principal at Stevenson. The idea wasn't to create a professional learning committee. That's not the goal. The goal was this: God, Stevenson, let's introduce all these best practices. Let's try them out. Let's tweak them. Let's make them better. Uh, what we call it you know that, uh, that,
0: inconsequential you
1: know, Yeah, I had actually just seen him do this on a number of occasions uh, people call this action research he didn't call it anything but they would be an issue right? I think the one I'll just bring up like grading practice at Stevenson that was a big big deal if you're going to change grade practices, we're talking about, you know, 4,500 kids, wealthy neighborhood, teacher has been teaching there for years, my kids, my way. So Rick, I can just see him standing in front of the faculty and taking his hand and going right down the middle of the faculty and said, okay, here's what, let's do this. This half of the room will try this for the next no, six weeks. Mm-hmm and then this half, we'll keep doing what we did, and then we're going to prepare ourselves. or he might switch in the next right. six weeks. You do this, and you do this. And they would try these things out, and his whole idea was when the evidence becomes clear to the group, even those who oppose the idea, clear, then we'll go ahead and win. But he would do that sort of learning together, and when I say learning together, I don't mean book study. I mean, that's part of it, obviously, the learning written thing, research reports, book studies, conferences thing. But learning together at its core for us, man, is kind Which is
0: part of the success of schools that achieve highly in professional learning communities process is to get out of your
1: comfort zone. Exactly. Okay. And you don't have to do the whole school. The idea was to do, let's try it out. Right. And the evidence will become clear to those who are most opposed to it. This becomes so. Um, Now, the question becomes, well, where do you you get your idea of what you should be working on? I mean, you could say, yeah, but it still has its roots in the printed statistical research. Well, that's part of it. I mean, you would say, well, look, research shows, whatever. Maybe we should try that. Right. But I think the bigger part of it comes from us was a honest and hard and truthful and informed look at our data. And we were data-driven. And, 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 uh, we could affect our communities. That's what a professional is a professional organization, it's a data-driven organization. And so I think Rick and I may have been early on this idea of the place to start first is look inside, not yourself personally, but we called it painting a data portrait of your school. This is our school right now, all aspects of it. Right the good, the bad, and the ugly. And then out of that, let's see what seems to be the most critical first step. We can't do everything at one time. So let's focus on this. What college research tells us about this? What well, we become a learning organization. We've learned about here's, here's an accurate portrait of our school uh, that's painted with data. And here's what the research tells us that's important. About that particular area. Now, the next step is: What are some things we should try? We used to use this phrase: "How would we like our school to be significantly different in that particular area?" Here's what we look like now. Here's what the research shows. Let's describe this aspect of our school the way we'd like for it to become. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, if you look, what's really interesting about uh, the work. At Stevenson, Why, and, and, and that all this time, Rick and I are working with other schools, too. We've worked with, for 15 years, we did this. Prior to PLC at work, we've worked with other schools, other school districts. But, you know, people use this phrase, write a vision statement of your school. Well, we always thought that was just far too broad, that if you looked at the data of your school, right, you could kind of categorize that, right? And so you would say, well, what does our vision for a school curriculum look like? What does our vision for student relations look like? Our parent uh, relations, our assessment, our... So so we really wrote these short vision statements around the various aspects of school. And in the uh, back. Of uh, revisiting PLC work at work at book revisiting PLC. Work. Right. We have in the appendix the ones from Stevenson. So you can see how those were broken down yep. by different uh, aspects of
0: schooling. Well, 25 years later, you got to feel kind of proud about all the work that you guys did
1: before the 25 years started. We sort of gained confidence in our ideas. Right, like I say, they weren't labeled necessarily, but we it gave us impetus for trying things out in schools. And I do want to kind of wrap this up by saying there's something to be said about well, you can have tremendous ideas and ideas that are that work, but if no one knows about them, or if few knows about them, that's just what it is. It's some ideas that work, but no one knows about them. And so the value of having a publisher like Solution Tree and uh, not just the personalities, but the conceptual framework of Solution Tree and how Solution Tree thought about tying together the print and uh, along with, you know, institutes the and, the and the events. I've said many times, we, 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 you could have a lot of PLC you at know, work books in a warehouse <laughs> somewhere. And so, whether it's through Solution Tree or whatever, I really have become, as I'm getting really old, think more and more about this thing of uh, how we think about disseminating ideas and getting people moved from being informed to being convinced. Yeah. That's what, we, that's what Solution Tree and PLC at work has. If you want to say, what's one of our biggest successes? Well, the reason it's lasted 25 years and continues to grow is we've created a framework to help people not only become informed, but become convinced. And that's a rare thing, in my opinion.
0: Yes, it is. At the beginning of the, the podcast, you said if there's any contribution that Rick and I made, dot, dot, dot. I think there's a pyramid, gigantic pyramid, of, full of uh, contributions that you and, and Rick have made. So on well, behalf of all the educators in the world, thanks, Bob Aker. Well, my friend. Thank you. <laughs> And with that, we will end this uh, podcast. If you have any questions for Bob Aker, you can send them directly to me. It's jeff.jones at com, And I will get them to Dr. Bob. So thank you for listening. And we'll talk again soon.